Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased to welcome Peter Barnes to the podcast. Peter is an innovative thinker and entrepreneur whose work is focused on fixing the deepest flaws of capitalism. He has written numerous books and articles, co-founded several socially responsible businesses and started a retreat for progressive writers. Peter's most recent books are With Liberty and Dividends for All and Capitalism 3.0, A Guide to Reclaiming the Commons. Thank you very much, Peter, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here, Fergal. So um, you've been in this game for many a year and you've had uh, different roles and I know you started out in um, business and uh, moved into a, a number of different areas over the years um, and I'd like to just maybe get a sense of you could talk a little bit about your background and how you became really uh, passionate about the environment. Well uh, I've been a various things in my life. I've been a journalist, I've been a business person, I've been a writer, which is what I am now. In all those things, I guess I could say I have um, always been a explorer, a thinker, um, usually about uh, 20 years ahead of the curve. I went into the solar energy business in the 1970s. It didn't work out then. It's uh, obviously come back now. Um, Anyway, I, I, I um, started, I retired from business uh, at the age of 55, which is over 20 years ago. And since that time, I've been really exploring, thinking and writing about the relationship between our economic system and the environment, how our economy relates to nature and doesn't relate to nature properly and how could we possibly fix that that has been my main focus right right and you've written about this you 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 you, you continue to write about it and you've written several books um i before going on, to, talking about uh particular books and particular sets of ideas I just wonder we set the scene a little bit um What's on your mind at the moment? What worries you the most? What 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 are the things that keep you awake at night? <laughs> you know, there are so many. My wife and I joke about the various apocalypses that are looming and which is going to be the first one to actually hit. Who knows? But, um, you know, I think the most, the thing that keeps me up at night the most is climate change. And you know, I live in California, and we recently had these incredible fires. I'm a hundred miles or so away from where the so-called campfire, the the biggest one ever in California history, was. Uh, so I wasn't near the flames, but everybody in this area in Northern California was just enveloped in in the smoke and the ashes from this horrendous fire, and that really brought it home to me in an experiential way you know i've been thinking about it as a as a kind of an intellectual problem up to now but uh 
I feel, you know, physically what it means. Uh, it means different things in different parts of, of the planet, but in a dry climate like California, it means fire. And that is pretty scary. And that's what I worry about the most. Yes, yes. And, and you've, you know, been an outspoken, I guess, advocate about, you know, reducing carbon emissions for some time. Um, where do you think we are in terms of public awareness and, uh, uh, I guess, uh, readiness to take action? Well, I think the public awareness is pretty high. Um, readiness to take action is a, is a slightly different thing. I mean, people are ready to do certain things. I don't know if people are ready to do everything that it will take to, I, said, I was about to say, stop this. But I, I think the the, the the awareness, the recognition is starting to sink in that it can't be stopped at this point. We are past some kind of tipping point and 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 the question really is how bad is it going to be and that is a tough thing to get one's head around i think and uh i don't know if people have gotten there yet not not that it matters uh i don't think the problem is is lack of awareness at this point i think it's oh it's just this inability to crack the political system in a, in a way that will lead to taking action that is sufficient to to minimize the damage that is coming absolutely and i guess in america not just in america but there is it's pretty polarized and there's still large blocks of people who don't accept you know global warming and the 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 the, the uh, carbon emissions and 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 you know the the the, the scale of the Right. And and one of our major political parties, obviously, is in a state of complete denial. And uh, that makes it impossible to get anything significant done. Uh, I mean, there is a sort of emerging consensus, if you can say that, about the need to put some kind of a price on carbon. Uh, it's not going to happen during the Trump administration. It may happen in the next administration. I don't know. You know, again, it's all a matter of timing and and magnitude you know when people talk about putting a price on carbon they talk about oh 25 35 40 50 dollars a ton um which is nothing compared to what the price if if pricing is going to be the primary uh solution to this uh it has to be way way higher than that that's like 50 dollars a ton is about five cents a gallon of gasoline. I mean, that's going to make absolutely no difference. Yes, could be a, a, a daily swing in the prices, or a fraction of them. Um, and of course, there are big political issues around carbon pricing. And I know uh, a lot of nuanced discussions about cap and dividends and cap and uh, various, you know, ways of, of structuring the um, these these uh, carbon pricing mechanisms and so forth um now you've um maybe just uh before talking about that i'm just wondering uh who who do you blame for the environmental problem oh my god uh 
I, I, you mean who, uh, as if it were a person? I don't think it's a person. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a, it's the system. It's, it's capitalism. I, I hate to say it, but uh, the, um, the market failure uh, problem uh, of capitalism is deeply entrenched in, in the sense of what do I mean by market failure? I mean that the interests of future generations of, uh, of ecosystems of the earth have no representation whatsoever in markets. Uh, there are no property rights representing future generations, no prices, no agents, nothing. So everything proceeds with the sole goal of maximizing short-term profit and no consideration for the consequences. So that's just baked into the DNA of the system right now. And uh, uh, until that changes, I don't know how we'll ever get out of this. Yes. Yes. Now, you, you, I think one of your books called Capitalism 3.0, and it's an idea you've you, you certainly spent some time thinking about and talking about. And I'd be interested to get a, a couple of, maybe if you could kind of point us to a few of the key ideas behind that. But I'm just curious why you called it Capitalism 3.0. Why didn't you maybe call it something else? Why, what, what, why has it got to be capitalism? I mean, you pointed out very succinctly, you know, that the, the, the capitalism is at the root of the problems, that the system is, is there, that, that, that this is a, a key part of, of, of what, what's, what's been happening. Um, do, do, don't we need something else? Well, um, I'm not that hung up on the name, you know, uh, I'm more hung up on the structure. And uh, capitalism has numerous good aspects. I mean, I, I believe markets are a, in general, uh, a better mechanism for structuring an economy than whatever the alternative is, which is some kind of uh, central state control. So if one takes a fairly loose definition of capitalism, I, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, however, uh, the the, mar the fundamental market failure that we talked about uh, is uh, has to be fixed. If it's fixed, and if we have a market economy in which nature is represented at the same level as corporations, so that you have an effective balance between entities like corporations that are trying to maximize short-term profit and other entities such as ecosystem trusts whose purpose and mission and legal authority is to protect ecosystems, um, then I think you could have a functioning market economy that, um, you know, uh, for which sustainability was as important a goal as, as short-term profit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a very interesting area that you, you, you've done, you, I guess, originally with the idea of the Sky Trust. But these idea of these ideas of this idea of the of trusts, and I guess underlying it, this idea, this the common the commons. And, yes. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about why the commons matters and ways in which 
you know we can look after the commons and and maybe a little bit about what why trusts what what would trusts offer us okay well let's start with the commons i mean there's there's the old commons and everybody talks about the tragedy of the commons uh I, I don't think of the commons quite that way. Um, I, I think we have to, you know, we're in the 21st century. We have to create modern institutions that represent, as the old commons did, uh, our, our shared inheritance, okay? And um, there's a lot out there that actually is our shared inheritance, starting with the atmosphere and all sorts of ecosystems, but we don't um, organize these inheritances in a proper way so that they can stand up uh, to all the various assaults. The the so-called tragedy of the commons, if I might just mention uh, that again, uh, is not really a tragedy of the commons. It's a tragedy of the market. The commons... Uh, is a victim. It's not its own destroyer. Uh, the market is the destroyer, the invader, the encloser. Um, so we need to fix the market so that the commons can survive and thrive. Now, trusts, you know, so, so what's going to fix the market? That is the question. Of course, you know, the simple answer that often comes up as well, the, the state is, is the only viable sort of counter force to the market. Um, the state has a role in all of this. I'm not uh, 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 going to come out against the state or, or against government. Uh, but the role of the state, as I see it, is primarily to create these autonomous institutions that uh, I'm generically calling trusts. Uh, and, the, and, and the difference between a trust and a corporation is really the significant thing. Uh, the corporation, the modern corporation as it has evolved, is a, an automaton that strives to maximize the return to shareholders. That is what it does. Okay, there's a role for that sort of thing. But what <clears throat> is missing is another kind of institution that has the same sort of power in the market, uh, as corporations do, uh, but a, a completely different mission. So a trust, the trust form is an old thing. It's not new. We don't have to reinvent it. The idea of a trust is it is a legal entity like a corporation chartered by the state, and its mission is to manage assets on behalf of beneficiaries. So if you wanted to leave some money to a grandchild, let's say, and you were assuming that you would die before the grandchild uh, was born or came of age, you would, you would set up a trust. Somebody who is a trustee for a beneficiary has the legal responsibility to act solely on behalf of the beneficiary. So, um, okay, if we think about ecosystems as essential 
assets that we jointly inherit, and we need to create institutions uh, to manage them. That is, to limit access to them so that they are not damaged. A trust would be an ideal kind of institution. Um, so you need a trust or multiple trusts. They need to be given the property rights, that is, the the authority to say uh, no trespassing or, yes, if there's some trespassing, uh, we can limit the amount and we can limit the amount. We, the trustees, can limit the amount so as to not harm future generations who are the ultimate beneficiaries. We can also uh, put a price on the limited amount of access that we as trustees allow. So I think that is the ideal institution for protecting the things, the, the pieces of nature that, that need to be protected. Now, in order to get the, these institutions set up with the appropriate property rights, uh, you do need government to act, at least to set these things up. But once they are set up, then like corporations, they run themselves. And the idea behind a sky trust is that you, you have two sets of beneficiaries. One obviously is future generations. You, you have to protect the asset for future generations. But the other set is all living persons equally in the sense that if you limit access and charge a market price for that access, in other words, what is the demand for using, let us say, the atmosphere? The demand is pretty high to use the atmosphere as a dump for carbon and other sorts of emissions. Uh, but we're going to restrict the supply. And out of that uh, demand versus supply, you get a price. As we, as we decrease the amount that we of use that we allow, we, we decrease the supply, the price is going to go up. There's a lot of money there. And the question is, who gets the money? And the thinking behind the Sky Trust and the, or the so-called cap and dividend model is that the trust sets the limit, which is quantified in terms of a number of permits that are usable. Uh, and if I may just get a little wonky, uh, I would differentiate between permits to bring carbon into our economy as opposed to permits to pollute. It's much more efficient to put your limits at the upstream part where you can capture it and quantify it much more easily and put prices on it than on the downstream end where you're trying to capture, you know, so to speak, all the emissions from every flu and tailpipe and so forth. Anyway. Okay. Uh, carb if carbon doesn't come in to our economy, it can't go out into the atmosphere. Uh, uh, a lot of the thinking originally about how you um, deal with carbon emissions is to put limits on the smokestacks, the tailpipes, where it comes out. It's, I'm just saying this is not a huge point, but it's, it helps. Is We really need to limit it where it comes into the economy because there's only a relatively small number of companies 
oil companies, gas companies, coal companies, etc., that bring carbon-based fuels into the economy. You can say that the first seller of a carbon-based fuel needs to have a permit based on the carbon content of their fuel. We limit those permits. We make them pay the market price. Uh, if we do that effectively, in other words, if the limits are strong enough, uh, we can solve the problem. I mean, that, that is a relatively simple way to solve the problem. Well, I think that's fascinating. I think fascinating. I mean, just this idea, and I think, I don't know what the figures are, but some kind of figures that are bandied around that 100 companies are responsible for 70% of greenhouse gas emissions, global emissions. Exactly. Now, of course, they're responsible, but we, we're buying the product. So we're, we're part of it. It's not to say that, you know, but in terms of, I guess, from a Pareto perspective, if you're trying to think of the minimum number of variables, of actors that you need to get involved... And of course, that was a key part of the Montreal Agreement was they could get a certain number of people into the room and agree something. So they narrow down the, the range. So that's seemed to me, you know, quite, uh, uh, I won't say obvious, but you just think, yes, what, why don't we focus on, you know, the hundred companies in one sense? So what, what are the arguments there? Yeah, well, um, that, that would, I mean, the, the word to describe that is an upstream cap. It can't be voluntary. These companies are not going to voluntarily limit how much fuel they produce and, and bring into our economy. So it has to be imposed by either government or an entity created by government, such as a trust that has the authority to do that. Um, so that's the first step. But the, the political difficulty is, well, you know, if, if you do that, you're going to uh, raise the price of energy that everybody pays, or at least, uh, carbon based energy. And that is not going to be popular for a multiplicity of reasons. I mean, we see the, what's going on in France right now as an example, but the way to offset that is by paying, taking the revenue that you get from pricing carbon and distributing it to everybody within a country or a region equally so that the, the, the dividends that they get actually for most people except the very highest carbon users are going to come out ahead economically right. so this idea peter of the upstream cap as you call it i mean how well established is that and how how i mean it, it's been around for some time and, and where where is the debate on that at the moment well i mean oddly enough it's actually making headway that is to say i uh canada has has uh, recently adopted something very much like this with the dividend the upstream cap and dividend approach um there are bills and proposals in, in America uh, that are popping up all over the place along these lines. So it's kind of late. But um, and again, the question of what is the price? How high is the price? I don't think people have sunk their teeth into that yet. But uh, the concept of of putting a price and using the revenue from the price to give it back to people so that majority of people come out ahead, I think is almost um, sort of the accepted uh, structural solution to this problem, if we can ever get 
to a place politically where we're ready for a structural solution. The only, you know, weak point is that people still think the price is going to be low and it shouldn't be. But I'm willing to, you know, for the sake of moving forward, I think the, the way to go is to start with get the architecture right, get the upstream cap, get the dividend uh, in there, even if it's too small and the cap is too high, but get a system set up so that people can see it's actually uh, not a bad plan that, that uh, yes, in some ways it forces them to change their living habits, but on the other hand, it gives them some money. And uh, I think net net people would be happy with it. And then gradually, or not so gradually, uh, you you ratchet up the price or you ratchet down the cap, which are similar. And, uh, you know, little by little, we get to the level that we need to be at. Right, right. And do you worry about vested interests? Do you worry about the power of the fossil fuel industry and large corporations? Sure. <laughs> well, that is the uh, the, the big hurdle. Uh, I mean, some of them are slightly coming around, you know, at least to supporting like Shell, Exxon and BP have supported a modest carbon price with dividends. I think they believe if they can keep the price low, they can certainly live with that uh, for many decades. Um, but you're right. This is this is the uh, the difficulty, and it's been kind of insuperable up to this point. Uh, and it and it's still <laughs> it's it's not going to be easy. What can I say? I mean, this yeah. is why I'm not optimistic. Yes. 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 Um, I'm, uh, you, we talk about trusts and so forth. Um, I guess one of the lessons of, of, um, history is that capitalism is amazingly, well, fertile or, or recombinant somehow reconfigures itself over time, uh, over hundreds of years and is, um, uh, you know, has, has continued to, to morph, I suppose, uh, the global corporations we have today. We start to see some movement. Clearly, there are, you know, big corporations starting to see significant momentum in parts of the investment market with ESG and responsible investment and things like that. Um, do you, is that something you, you, you're, you're abreast of? And are, are you optimistic that uh, that's, that's going to make a change? Well, I spent uh, many years uh, earlier in my life in in the emerging field. In, in those days, it was called socially responsible investing or socially responsible business, uh, multiple bottom lines. So I have a history in that area. But uh, to give you my frank answer, I, I um, no, I, I don't think that that holds. It's complicated. It, yes, the problem they're focusing on the problem, which is this 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 uh, shareholder profit maximization problem. Um, but I don't think, even if you have something like B Corps, where the corporation is legally bound to maximize profit, if they want to get less than maximum profit and 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 uh, uh, behave more ecologically. Uh, they are not legally going to be 
you know, sued. That's good. I'm not against it, but uh, from my experience, all that's not sufficient because um, ultimately, even though maximizing shareholder value may not be the sole responsibility of these corporations, it may be only one of several, uh, as you say, bottom lines, it is nevertheless um, the dominant bottom line. It, it cannot be otherwise, really. Um, so I think the counterweight, in other words, what I'm saying is the counterweight, the fix to the system has to come from outside corporations rather than inside corporations because um, ultimately they are going to – they have to be profitable. It's maybe yeah. not maximally yes. I mean, profitable, yeah. but profitable. Yeah. And I don't and just, that, yeah, but I, I no. guess it raises this question of, you know, maybe this is about stakeholder capitalism and more stakeholders. But again, finance surely has the whip hand. And to what extent yes. has it really changed? Really, is it conceivable that a form of finance would emerge that would say, you know, that, that wouldn't be trying to grow and grow as much as possible. And I guess, which in turn leads to this question of economic growth, which we haven't really discussed, but, you know, it has to be uh, hand in hand with this. Yes. Um, finance, I don't think the solution lies in finance. Uh, uh, I mean, almost by definition, fi the whole, the job of finance is, is to make capital grow that's what it does so if there are so so the, if there is a solution to all of this it has to be in the form of actual physical limits that are placed on corporations now whether those physical limits uh come from government or other entities like i've been saying like trusts that's that's we can debate that but absent physical limits, uh, the economy is going to keep doing what it does. I think if, and finance will just finance that, there, there's no getting around that. If you have physical limits, um, I think markets will adapt and finance will adapt. Uh, the goal will still be to maximize profit, but it will have to be done within the boundaries that are externally set. And uh, I think, you know, capitalism, as you said earlier, is, is flexible, creative and all that. It will figure out how to run and make profits within whatever boundaries we set for it. Yes. And that is a big ask, I suppose, in terms of the regulatory um, regulation, government regulation, but that the, 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 I guess the power that, that the governments have well given up. Um, the deregulation, the 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 last certainly the last thirty years, the the footloose capital and so forth. Um, yeah. That 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 you know, it seems that that phase, or certainly the the arguments underlying this uh, free floating deregulated economy uh, in, in certain quarters, is being questioned, and and the, and the narrative seems to be uh, less dominant, less persuasive. 
space for new new ways of thinking about you know as as you talked about you know trusts and so forth um these are you know interesting ideas and powerful ideas that 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 need to be that that would need the support the governance of of, of governments um and i'm just wondering how, how you see something like that i mean what's the appetite and, and how you see something like that maybe playing out well uh it, it's we're getting there, you know, I can say that, but are we getting there fast enough? I don't think so. Um, you know, as I said earlier, the um, idea of caps and dividends, which is basically limits, uh, has, has made progress in the last 20 years. Um, there have been, you know, legislation has been introduced. In some cases, it's been passed, like in states and provinces and places. All right, so that's progress. But uh, are we close, anywhere close to having it gotten, getting that to the point where a major country will actually apply it seriously uh, at the level it needs to be applied in order to avert the catastrophe that is coming down? No. So, um, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned one country, but I know the work you've done, the Alaska Permanent Fund is an example. Yeah. That certainly. Can you talk a little bit about what what is that and what were the what was the context in which that managed to, you know, that that was set up and has managed to and what, what has it achieved? What are the lessons? Yeah. Well, the Alaska Permanent Fund has nothing to do with the environment. Uh, but it is a model nonetheless that has a lot to do with the commons and sharing the benefit of the commons. So what they did in Alaska was to say when oil was discovered there in the seventies, well, okay, this oil actually belongs to the people of the state of Alaska and, uh, we're going to lease it obviously to private companies, but we're going to, you know, charge royalties and all that stuff. And we're going to, uh, we're going to save and invest that money that comes to us. The, the, the Alaska permanent fund is like a, is a mutual fund and it, it, it's been capitalized by the revenue from oil on public lands and it invests that money and what it earns on those investments it pays dividends to every uh, resident of Alaska, equal dividends, a couple thousand dollars a year per person. Um, so this is a very popular program. Um, and what I'm saying is that it, it creates a, a model that we can apply to the atmosphere and other um, commons uh, where environmental protection is, is, is a key factor and the more so the, so what the alaska model shows is that is is that dividends to everybody universal dividends are a, a viable way to to both protect and share the benefits from a common asset nobody thinks of the atmosphere as as something like an oil well, but it is if we limit its use. Scarcity is what creates value, and we there's very little atmospheric waste absorption capacity left, so there's a 
genuinely scarce resource that needs to be priced anyway. So that's that's where the Alaska uh, uh, Permanent Fund comes in as a model for how to manage a scarce resource that belongs to everybody. I suppose the other side of the coin is that this question of commodification and if you start to put financial values on, uh, you know, the environment, on nature, is there a danger that that will just get commodified and somehow, you know, just seen in a purely financial way and uh, or in a dominant financial way and, and, and you know, and, and, and what might happen then? Yes, there is a danger there. So, uh, I mean, that is sort of what happened with some of the cap and trade systems that were developed uh, in the last couple of decades. Uh, so I think commodification, well, it, I don't like that word uh, particularly, but uh, what, you, but yes, you have to monetize if we're going to, it's sort of bizarre, but in order to save nature, I believe one does have to monetize it in order, you have to fight fire with fire and capitalism is a monetized system and uh, nature has to be given some value, uh, not for the purpose of maximizing private profit, but for the purpose of being able to uh, limit the use now, how do, how do I express that? Um, partly, it's one of the reasons we have externalities like pollution is that there is kind of a language problem. Uh, our economic system runs with money as its language. Nature does not. Uh, nature's language is chemicals. Uh, so you have there's no lingua franca. There's no communication between nature and and markets. And this is why markets ignore nature. So what are we going to do? Um, I think we have to. The first thing we have to do is is get a, uh, a common language, and that common language necessarily includes property rights and money prices. Where the danger is, is if maximizing the, <laughs> the monetary return becomes the goal. But that doesn't have to be the goal. The goal, the primary goal, is to preserve the assets. In the process of preserving the assets, and I'm talking about nature here, uh, uh, yes, prices come in. There is quantification, but that's okay uh because then the economy then you send that price that quantified value of nature then becomes an impediment uh to the use of it oh my god okay uh which is what we want it becomes both an impediment um to the use of nature and a reward uh, if we use less of it, that's that's where the benefits of pricing can come in if we do it right. Yes, yes, I suppose we're at the tail end of a period where we see all, certainly see many in, in, in the UK, certainly many of the social assets, I suppose you could talk about, you know, from, from the social state and so forth, have been privatized, have been, I won't use the word commodified, but sold off 
Um, yes. And, you know, what used to be a library is now uh, turned into a block of, you know, uh, expensive flats. And again and again, these social spaces, I mean, we call them assets, but social resources have yeah. been have been uh, taken away and privatized and sold. And the the the, um, the people that have profited from it have been the, you know, corporations of various kinds. So I suppose there is always that challenge that if you're a trust and clearly what you have, what, what, what you're managing, what you're looking after isn't just measuring financial value, but it does have significant financial value, then, you know, what might start to happen or how, how do you protect that from uh, the kinds of things you see, you know, with, I don't yeah. know, American political, so with PACs and all kinds of strange organizational forms and finance and things sneaking their way in and <laughs> I'm not trying to say it's all finance. Did I say that? Yes, yeah. all, all finance, but yes, yeah. <laughs> no, no, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a, those are perfect examples, perfect bad examples of ways not to go. But in, in Britain, you have this thing, for example, called the National Trust. The National Trust has been around 100 years. Uh, it owns tons of properties and land and all sorts of things. It probably gets some revenue from them when it rents them and so forth. All of which is fine because the um, the purpose of the trust is to preserve the assets. Um, so what I'm saying is the 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 goal that has to be baked into our economic system, along with profit maximization, is preservation of common assets that are essential for future generations and um that's it It, it, yes yeah and i I think it's interesting as well the possibilities of governance here as well and i know talking to people for example who are involved in um looking after wasteland in india which is massive one quarter one fifth i don't know some massive amount of india is classified as wasteland and it's and uh of course, what it actually means is that the uh, people in the village or in the towns nearby that have power actually use this land for their own welfare and so forth. But there's uh, various organizations that are uh, working on making this, creating these spaces and, and or, or should we say, putting in place governance to look after them. Yes. And uh, and bringing in, you know, the poorest people in, 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 the, in the villages and so forth as part of this mechanism, as part of this governance. And what they have, what they, what they say to me is that actually they have such a, uh, a long-term view on, on, on these spaces. So, you know, when they're looking at decisions as to, you know, what we're going to plant cash crops or are we going to plant, you know, much longer term ecologically, uh, rich, you know, uh, ecosystems to, to, to for the future. They tend to veer towards that, even though some of these are the poorest people on the planet. Um, and you know, I guess that's an important lesson, isn't it, in terms of including, yes. uh, you know, this question of of, of governance and the question of involving people who, who who are you know represent well on one hand that it, it, it is their resources uh, locally but also stewards this idea of stewardship I think that's important right. isn't it yes so I think you've you've hit it on the head common ownership with a mandate 
to preserve the underlying asset. Yes, you can use it, you can make some money off it, but the dominant algorithm, so to speak, is to preserve the asset for future generations. That, in a nutshell, is is what has to be elevated uh, to a very high position within you know, capitalism, markets, whatever you want to call in, in our economic system. Yes, yes, yes. And what's on your mind now looking forward, Peter? What, what do you, I mean, some of the ideas you've been working on have taken a bit of time to, to evolve for people to get them and so forth. And um, it's, it's great to see that. Um, what, what are you thinking about at the moment? What, what, are you working on a particular book, a particular project? Yeah, well, I'm working on a book um, whose working title is How to Fix Our Rigged Economy. So it looks at how the economy is rigged. Um, and I don't mean necessarily rigged in a uh, pejorative sense. I just mean that any any complex system is rigged. It is It is designed to operate in a certain way, and we're stuck in that way at the moment. All right. So we need to re-rig it at a fundamental level. And the two goals of that re-rigging need to be, one, you know, respect for nature. We have to figure out how to internalize these externalities that we've been talking about. And the other, which is complementary, um, is economic security for everybody. Um, we have such a wealthy economy. I mean, you know, there's plenty of poor people and everything, but our economy is so productive. We have more than enough resources and capacity to provide basic economic security for everybody. Uh, and yet we don't. Um, and, and we have, and the economy is rigged not to do that. It is rigged to concentrate wealth and income among a small minority and screw with people who aren't uh, really uh, benefiting from the system. Um, the way, so the, the essence of what I'm trying to uh, uh, write about is, is to sort of take the SkyTrust, for example, and write it large for the larger economy. We need to use assets that we jointly inherit such as nature, and also social assets created by our ancestors. Think, for example, of our financial system, our financial infrastructure. Uh, this is something that we've created collectively over centuries. Uh, it's dysfunctional, however, uh, but you could argue that it, it belongs to us collectively, only it's been privatized by banks. And there are ways that we could kind of reclaim some of the value of our socially created assets as well as our naturally inherited assets and make them work for the people rather than the elites. And a combination of doing that and protecting nature and paying dividends to everybody uh, through trusts that both protect nature and, and sort of capture some of the financial value that is now not just of nature, but finance in general. Uh, and I could talk about that more, but it's a little off our topic. Um, 
we could, in theory, I think, have a market-based economy that was good for nature, good for people, that actually would would work. Whether, you know, that's that's theoretical. I could see theoretically how that could happen. Um, whether we have the political will to do that, of course, is is a whole other question. And whether there's enough time left uh, to do it in, in terms of climate change is yet another question that I'm not optimistic about. But it's worth it's it's not worth it's it's essential to figure out how to have an economic system that does what an economic system needs to do, not what's going on now. And and hope, I mean, it's not totally hopeless. It's, uh, I think, the there are going to be crises of various sorts uh, in the next decade or so. Uh, they could be financial crises. They could be uh, natural calamities brought about by climate change. There's any number of uh, potential crises. Um I think crises have to be seen as opportunities to make fundamental change uh, because when there's a crisis, people start realizing that the current way of doing things uh, isn't working and there need to be significant changes made. But we have to be ready for those crises. And um, what happened in 2008 was we had a crisis and it was wasted. Nobody really knew what to do. We still have the same financial system, more or less, that we had before 2008. And certainly, environmentally, nothing has changed. So to the extent that I have any hope, it lies in uh, this vision of being ready to take advantage of crises that we know are coming and uh, make sure that we don't waste them, that we make structural fundamental reforms to our economy um, when we have the next crisis and hopefully change the direction in which we're moving at that point. I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing research and writing and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Fergal. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.